It is so important that we sing songs like that regularly that take us back to the acknowledgement of our sin and need for a Redeemer. Songs like that remind us that, um, as Paul puts it, we are uh, just earthen vessels, uh, broken pots. I've heard it translated even cracked pots. So that it is clear that the power of the gospel that we proclaim, that power is not something due to us, it's due to the Lord himself. And singing songs like that bring us back repeatedly to the acknowledgement of who we really are and our greatest need, and that is our Redeemer. Well, please join me in John 17 again this morning. John chapter 17. We'll be concluding this great chapter this morning, looking at the last three verses. Perhaps you are one of those who uh, doesn't like not knowing the end of a story. could be a story that you've only heard half of it from someone or a book that you didn't complete or perhaps a movie that wasn't finished. You want to know, well, how, how does it end? Well, that idea of the need for an ending, that actually relates to theology. There is an end to the storyline of the Bible. There is an end to God's redemptive plan to save sinners. In theological studies, we have a word for that. It's called consummation, the ending of the story, the consummation. If there's not a consummation, then what is the point of it all? Even being saved from our sin, what's the point? Are we saved from our sin just to have a little better idea of how to live in this world? Are we saved from our sin just so that we go to heaven when we die? I mean, don't get me wrong, that is something to look forward to. Going to heaven is great, but what about heaven? I mean, is it just a place where we can finally let our hair down, we can finally relax, I mean, we can just sort of sit around in our white robes and strum our harps and... Finally, with no pressure and no trials for all eternity. It is true that there will be no pressure, no trials in heaven for all eternity. But, but heaven is about something far more than that. It's about living and worshiping in the presence of Jesus, our Savior for eternity. And basking in and even sharing in his glory and That's the end of all things for us. When it comes to the consummation of all things for us, that's it. And Jesus touches on this consummation in our passage today in John 17, verses 24 to 26. This is the last portion of his prayer on that night before his crucifixion. We found him praying for himself first. Then he moved on to pray for the 11 disciples that were with him. And then he prayed for the church. In other words, all those who would come to follow him as Savior and Lord, even after he had returned to heaven in the, in the centuries to come, it includes us. Now, as I stated last time that we looked at this chapter, this prayer for the church then breaks down into two requests. The first one being what we previously studied together in verses 20 to 23. We called that, number one, a request for a unified church. The theme of verses 20 to 23 is captured in the phrase at the beginning of verse 21. Jesus prayed that they may all be one. 
And then we made the following three observations, though, about that unity so we could understand it better, what he was praying for. We noted, first of all, that this unity has a particular boundary. He said it's for those who respond to the word. In other words, those who are truly believers, true Christians. Only those can really appreciate and enjoy and pursue this kind of unity that he's talking about. We noted, second, that this unity has a particular pattern. He drew our attention back to the relationship of the members of the Godhead, the the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, the unity they have. That's what we look to as a model, a pattern. And third, we noted that this unity has a particular intent. It's to enable, enhance our witness about Christ in the world. In contrast to that, public squabbles amongst Christians, public fights, public divisive blogs, and so forth, decrease the credibility of our message in the eyes of the world. Well, today we come to the second request. Jesus not only made a request for a unified church, he also made, number two, a request for a consummated church. A request for a consummated church. Now, the first request for unity, if you think about it, it, it had to do with our present lives and experience in this world. It's just that this present world is not all there is. There is a future waiting for us, an eternity waiting for us as God's people in heaven. What we're involved in now is temporary, but our existence in heaven will be forever. So that's what the focus of the prayer now shifts to. It shifts from the church's present existence here on earth in service of Christ, pursuing unity as we proclaim the gospel in this world, it shifts from that to our existence that is future and eternal. Someday, all true followers of Christ will be reunited in heaven with our Lord and with one another. Now, more specifically, what we find emphasized in this final petition are two ways to describe what our experience is going to be in heaven. And thus, what Jesus was actually praying for. Two ways to describe what our experience will be in heaven. Here's one way to describe what heaven will be. First of all, the experience of eternal glory. The experience of eternal glory. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am. This really underscores the close relationship of the Son to the Father because of the way he speaks to him. He is essentially able to say whatever he wants to the Father. He says, here's my my desire, Father. And that phrase, I desire, can also be translated, I will. Here's my will. But of course, we've learned in the Gospel of John that his will, the Lord's will, Christ's will, is nothing less than the will of his Father. Here's one example of that, John 5, verse 30. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So Jesus was rehearsing what his will is, which is the will of the Father, and he spells it out with a sense of urgency. He spells it out with a sense of passion. Those are the two nuances that that word desire include. Urgency, passion. Jesus used that term in expressing something that was something different than just wishful thinking, in other words. It's a strong, passionate desire on his part. But once again, 
He qualifies it. We find Jesus confirming that he has this passionate desire only for his true followers. He says, these are the ones, look at the text, whom you have given me. That includes all the elect, both the original followers and those who would believe on account of the, of the gospel being proclaimed. And this is the reason believers then are special to Christ. It's because they are a love gift from the Father to the Son. So it's for these, the love gift, his true sheep, that he has this passionate longing for something. And that is that all of them would finally be in heaven, or as he puts it, be with me where I am. And don't misinterpret that, the, the grammar used. It might sound like he's saying be with him right there when he was praying in that location. No, he's looking ahead, confident of where he was going, returning to heaven, to the glory that was there. And so I pray that, that the love gift, all my followers would be there with me. What an amazing insight this is into the heart of Christ for his people. He longed for his own to join him in heaven. He still longs for that, to have eternal fellowship with him. I mean, it makes sense, really. He purchased them at a great cost, the cross. So the Redeemer here longs to enjoy internal fellowship with them, the ones he purchased. That's how he sees Christians, true believers. And what a contrast that is to how the world sees us. We are many times despised by the world here on earth, yet we're desired by Christ. Despised by the world, desired by Christ, and that's more important. And it's amazing because he knows who we are. Even though he knows we're weak. Even though he knows our many failures. Even though he knows that our character is lacking at times. In heaven, he knows something else that we're going to be glorified there. We're going to be manifesting the beauty of a perfected holiness there. And so Christ sees us that way as his pure bride. And he longs for us to be with him there in that state. And that is the joy of heaven then for us. It's being there with him. It's being in heaven with Jesus in it. That is the very definition of heaven for Christians, to be with Jesus. The Apostle Paul understood that and he looked forward to it. You remember these words from 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 17? He's looking ahead at the, some of the eschatological events that are going to happen in the future, and he says in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with the Lord. That was the point. Gordon Ketty, commentator, puts it this way, Jesus' heart is not satisfied till we be in like condition with himself. He wants us to eat and drink at his table in his kingdom and to sit upon his throne. So, though it's understandable that we would desire that, I mean, certainly we want to be with him forever in heaven. That's not what's staggering. What's staggering is to think that he wants that too. He wants us to be with him. We know there's nothing in us that makes us inherently special. There's nothing 
in us that's deserving of this privilege. We know that actually God used to see us a totally different way as enemies. Romans 5 verse 10. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son. No, it's nothing in us. It's strictly due to God's mercy and grace that we're saved. And as well, it's strictly evidence of mercy and grace that Jesus would desire something like this to have eternal fellowship with us. And this is what makes heaven then so glorious for us. We are going to experience this. We are going to experience perfect, holy fellowship with Jesus forever. But it's even more than that. It's even more than just being with him. It is seeing him as he really is. Look at verse 24. It goes on with this little purpose connecting statement. So that, so that they may see my glory which you've given me. Jesus wants us to be with him. But even more, he wants us to see the pre-existent glory the Father has given to him. And that relates back to verse 5, if you'll remember the first part of the prayer in chapter 17. When Jesus was praying for himself, he prayed to be restored to that, to the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. He existed in eternity past as a member of the Godhead in glory in heaven, all the privileges of the glory of heaven, and he humbled himself and came to earth and took on human nature and a human body and humbled himself even to the point of a disgraceful, torturous human death. He prayed that he would return to that previous glory. And he did return to that glory. That's where he is today. So this is what believers have to look forward to in heaven. Don't get caught up with thinking, I I just want to see the streets of gold, you know, the pearly gates. No, it's seeing God the Son in his glory. It was veiled when he was here on earth. It's only in heaven that it's going to be fully manifested to his people. 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. And to see Christ's glory in heaven includes seeing Him in His true glorified manhood. Think about that. He was raised from the dead bodily, glorified bodily, returned to heaven in bodily form, glorified bodily form. We're going to see that. Perfect glorified manhood. We're going to Look at that, and we're going to marvel to see him in this glorified human form that he's going to always have. But beyond that, it's going to be the glory of his deity that is going to shine the most. Now, when he was here on earth, a measured vision of that glory, you could say, was granted to a handful of his disciples on that Mount of Transfiguration. In a sense, just for a a moment, they got this glimpse of, of, of who he really was, his deity, his glory. We could say that in his post resurrection appearances, they they did see him in glorified bodily form, but this is even going to be beyond that. We're going to see him fully, finally. Fully, when he brings us to himself and he reveals his divine glory to us. Thomas Manton puts it this way We go to heaven to study divinity in the Lamb's face. 
What's going to be the eternal result of all that? No doubt, it'll be eternal worship of Him. Eternally singing that same song and saying those same words that we studied in Revelation chapter 5 and, and the worthiness of the, of the Lamb and the glory of the, of the Son, worshiping Him forever. And this worship of Jesus in the radiance of His eternal glory will be the consummation then of our faith in Him. Plus, this eternal worship of the glorified Jesus is also going to be what provides us the ultimate satisfaction for our souls in heaven. I mean, our present worship on earth is wonderful. We love our times of worship and singing here. I hear many comment on that, and it's true for me as well. And as wonderful as it is, as it is it's just a foretaste of this eternal worship that we will give in heaven to the glorified Son. So the ultimate goal for followers of Christ the consummation for us is to see the glory of our exalted Redeemer, enjoying perfect fellowship forever. Listen, what's the point of that now? Well, knowing this should make a difference in us in this present world, even when we suffer. Even when we go through many types of, a, of afflictions that go along with living in a broken world. This should make a difference to think about our experience in heaven. It made a difference for Paul. That's why he could write this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, several verses. Listen to these, 2 Corinthians 4, 8 and 9. He first of all says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not despairing. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. What kept him going through those times? He writes it. A few verses later, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. We should understand this and meditate on it. It will sustain us in times of trouble. He goes on, Jesus adds this thought in verse 24, just in conclusion of this whole point. Verse 24, for you loved me, talking to the Father, before the foundation of the world. In other words, the future consummation of our salvation is grounded not in something about us, but in God's love for the Son. All the blessings that we're going to experience in heaven, everything about our relationship with God, flows from the reality that the Father, first of all, loved the Son from all eternity. Due to that eternal love, the Father chose a people. Due to that eternal love, he gave them to the Son as a love gift. Due to that eternal love, the Father to the Son, he prepared a kingdom, an eternal kingdom for them where they would then go and behold the Son's glory forever. So in a summary of this point, the Father has loved the Son from all eternity. The Son loves the ones who were given to him by the Father. And these are the ones who look forward to the consummation of this relationship in heaven, the experience of eternal glory. And that's connected to a second way, another way to describe what our experience will be in heaven. Second, the experience of intimate love. The experience of intimate love. Verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you. Stop there for a moment. 
Christ began this prayer by addressing it to Father. Now he starts to conclude it still by saying Father, but righteous Father. The Old Testament teaches this. Many verses that God is righteous, upright, just. Here's just one example. Psalm 119, verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Many other verses in the Old Testament, many in the New Testament. Put them all together and you see that God is righteous. He's upright in his person, in his deeds, his judgments, his wisdom, his commands, his words. Even in his forgiveness, Scripture says, he's righteous and just to forgive us when we confess our sin. Psalm 145, verse 17 summarizes, God is righteous in all his ways. But Jesus makes it clear here that not everyone knows God that way. I mean, he affirms to the Father that the world doesn't get that. The world doesn't know you, righteous Father. I mean, didn't Jesus come so the world would know the truth about the Father? Yes, so was his mission a failure? Of course not. So he says, I knew you. And he made God known to God's people. Therefore, he refers to his disciples there. He goes on and adds this in verse 25. And these have known that you sent me. And I've made known your name to them. So as we've noted in previous studies, we've seen this before, to make known a person's name is just to make known everything about the person, their character, who they are, their being. Back in chapter 17, this chapter, verse 6, part of the prayer, Jesus said in verse 6, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Jesus did accomplish that mission. He accomplished making the Father known. He did it through his own character and his own person, which is why he could say in John 14, verse 9, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He made this known through his own teaching, his words and his works. He says in John 14, verse 10, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does. Verse 11 of John 14, Believe because of the works themselves, the miracles. You put all that together. Jesus accomplished making the Father known. The truth about the Father through his own person, his works, his deeds, his words. But notice this additional thought, verse 25. He goes on to say, and I will make it known. That's something future. That's something ongoing. I mean, he's praying this on the eve of his crucifixion. So we can say, well, the future revelation of who the Father is is going to take place even in that. In the, even in the very events of the cross, we see the truth about the Father, that he's a God of holiness and righteous wrath, but a God of mercy and grace and goodness and love. And as well, we know that the Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. Jesus told his disciples that. And the Spirit, through the preaching of the gospel, began to make known who God is. This is therefore a statement then about the Lord's continuing, ongoing work, even now in heaven where he is at the right hand of majesty on high, ever working, ever making the Father known by the Spirit and the truth. But the greater point in all this, the greater point in praying this, is that there is once again an ultimate purpose in Jesus revealing the Father to his people. Verse 26, once again we see that little phrase, so that. 
so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus had taught his disciples this, that last night, that the Father loved them. Back in chapter 16, verse 27, for the Father himself loves you. The Father himself loves you. And we would say, well, we know that, and, and, and we love him as well. Just like the psalmist articulated, this is our heart's cry as well. Psalm 18, verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. But we know something about the order of how that happens. This author, John, writes later in one of his epistles that we didn't come to love God first, though. Our love of him is a response to his first love of us. 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. So Jesus is reiterating that, that the Father loves the sheep. Paul captures some truth about this love, the fact that it's the proactive love of God. I want to call your attention to Romans 5, 5 just for a moment because I want to comment on this verse about the love of God. Romans 5, 5. Paul says, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's given us. I mean, if we take this at, to heart, this is an encouragement to us that God loves us because this is our greatest need, you can say. We need God's love. But what kind of love is it? it, it it's not a fickle kind of love, the kind we express sometimes. One human toward another human. A love that sometimes is given only if someone has pleased us in some other way. No, this is perfect agape love that God gives. But he doesn't just give it. That verse says it's unlimited. It's unlimited in Romans 5. It says it's poured out. That's a verbal expression that connotes the ideas of abundance and extravagance. The, the supply of this love that Jesus was praying about that night is inexhaustible. There is no rationing of God's love to his people. We could even turn to Romans 8.39 in our hearts and we know something else about this love. It's unlimited. Yes, but it's unending. It's unending. Romans 8.39, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, think about that. This love that Christ was praying about that night, the Father loving the sheep, it is a permanent, it is a, an unvarying love. But there's a difference between His love of us and our sense of that love sometimes. There is often just a fleeting sense that we have of His love. We sometimes feel that his love is far from us. So we have a choice to believe our feelings, to trust our fickle feelings, or to trust what Scripture says, that it is unlimited, it is unending, that we can never be separated from it. Listen, no matter what is going on in your life, my life, past, present, or future, Always keep this in mind. We are in this intimate love relationship with the Lord and nothing will change that. And this love that he has for us is based 
in the eternal love that the Father had and has and always will have for the Son. So Jesus calls it here, the love with which you loved me. So what a reality that God loves us this way. I submit that it is this love of God for us that does sustain us while we are here, especially in the most difficult of times. In fact, his love for us is what guarantees that we are going to make it all the way to the consummation, all the way to heaven, when we will see and experience the glory of Jesus. And since in this part of Jesus' prayer, he has changed his focus from the earthly state and experiences to heaven when we will see his glory, this statement about God's love is flavored by that focus. Here's my point. God loves us now, but someday in heaven, we are going to come to know the love of God for Christ the Son and therefore the love of God for the followers of Christ. We are going to come to experience that and understand that in a unique and intimate way like never before. This is also part of the consummation of our salvation. Intimate, eternal love. Look at verse 26 again. Jesus prayed that this love, verse 26 says, may be in them and I in them. Those prepositions are always important, of course, and the preposition in can mean in, it can mean among, it can mean both, which is likely true here. I mean, it would refer to Jesus' spiritual presence in each of his followers individually, but secondarily, he does dwell collectively in his church among his followers. So in both ways, Jesus reveals the Father's love to his own. But in the future, in heaven, this intimate love of the Father, and as well, the presence of Jesus will be experienced on a whole new level because this is part of the consummation of the plan of redemption. Let me summarize this point again. Jesus initially makes the Father and the Father's love for his people known at the moment of salvation. He continues to make the Father's love known to believers through the process of ongoing sanctification. And finally, the time comes according to his perfect will when he ushers them into the Father's presence at their glorification where that love is fulfilled perfectly and intimately in them forever in heaven. That is the end of the story for us. Well, truly, this prayer by Jesus on the night before his crucifixion, as one writer said it, this is, and I agree, this is the greatest prayer that's ever been prayed. And what's amazing is to remember that Christ's intercession for his people that began that night is still continuing to this day. Romans 8.34, he is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. If you're a Christian, you should be encouraged by this fact. But let's at least take this one point home today from this. Since Jesus ended his prayer on a heavenly focus, we too need to remember to live our lives this way to be heavenly minded. 
frankly, this is very difficult for us today in this culture that we live in, our Western culture. One author I read kind of summarized it this way. We, we have things so good here. I mean, even in the midst of difficulties, we ultimately have things so good. It's, it's not easy for us to long for heaven. We, we live as if heaven is actually an interruption. It's an interruption to our busy schedules. It's an interruption to all of our plans and goals in this world. We, we have so much we need to experience. We have so much to find out about this world and what it offers. And, and, and we get all that done and goals and dreams for our families. And yeah, then I'll be ready for heaven. It's just evidence that we're forgetting that this world was never meant to fulfill us. This world was never meant to be our true home. Scripture refers to us as being aliens and strangers in this world. Our lack of being heavenly minded is just evidence that we have forgotten really where our true citizenship is. Paul makes it clear in Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly wait for our Savior. To come. We need to be heavenly minded. We need to cultivate that. One thing that will help that is just remember Christ's command to us. Here's his command to his followers related to this. Matthew 6, verses 20 to 21. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. Verse 21 of Matthew 6. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And the reverse of that is true. Where your heart is, there your treasure is. We need to remember Christ's command. We need to remember Paul's exhortation to all believers in Colossians 3 verse 1. Keep seeking the things above. Set your mind on things above where Christ is. We really do need to cultivate a longing for heaven. Remember Christ's command. Remember Paul's exhortations. Just remember the fact that everything that's important to us and precious to us is there. Our Heavenly Father's there. Friends and family members who have died in Christ, they're there. Paul just said our citizenship is there. Peter says our inheritance is there. Scripture helps us understand that, that finally our perfected state of holiness is there. But most important, our Savior is there. One writer put it, Jesus himself is truly the glory of heaven. So we need to ponder all of that and even ponder the words that we've already studied in John 14, verses 1 to 3. So I'll read them again. John 14, 1 to 3. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Jesus cared about the consummation of all this. We should too. And if you trust in Jesus in this life as your Lord and Savior, then you can have the assurance that you will be with him there in heaven. 
And if you have trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you can live now in the knowledge of that future glory and future love. And that will give you strength and joy to live for him now. What a privilege it is to conclude our study of this prayer and a focus on heaven by observing the Lord's table, remembering and even celebrating Christ's death on the cross, which not only purchased our redemption, but purchased, assures our future place in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this heart and mind reset that has been necessary for us this morning. We confess that we do forget who we are and we we do make decisions and we focus on the things of this world as if this is all there is, whether they're blessings or trials and forgetting that there's something else coming. So Lord, we need this reminder from time to time of your words, your commands, and what right thinking is about heaven. Help us, Lord, though. We are so weak. Help us to long for it. Help us to love the thought of that more than the temporary things of this world. Help us to be heavenly minded so that we can even be more earthly good while we're here. I pray for anyone here who's never come to submit to Christ and trust in him as Lord and Savior that you would open their hearts to believe today. But as we observe this table, the Lord's table, help us to properly remember and honor Christ for what he's done. In his name we pray. Amen.